Well, you know to turn to the book of Jude, and we'll be reading the first four verses of the book. We come then to the penultimate book of the Bible, second to last. It is so short that you may have missed it, just 25 verses. The book of Jude lives in the shadow of John's revelation, and it is easy to overlook, to miss. But as we dig in in the weeks to come, we will discover that, that Jude packs a punch. Jude is, is like a little firecracker at the end of the New Testament. And it is, in fact, one of the most fiery books of the New Testament. So let's begin in Jude, Jude 1. And there's only one chapter in Jude, so Jude verse 1. Hear God's word. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's come to God in prayer. Good and gracious God, we ask now for your help. We ask for the helper, your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and to convict us afresh. As your word is preached, speak light into our dark hearts. Form and fashion us according to the pattern of your word, according to the pattern of Christ, the living word. Do now, Lord, what no preacher can do. Do what only your word can do by the power of your Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, as we read, Jude writes to exhort us. He exhorts us to be fighters, to be contenders. He writes to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He calls us to fight the fight of faith and to fight for the faith. To fight and contend for the faith. To fight against rival faiths. Against false religions. Against contrary worldviews and, and belief systems. Paul writes, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Not ultimately. But we wrestle against principalities and powers against the rulers of this dark age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says in another place in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we are to pull down spiritual strongholds, that, that we are to cast down arguments and every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Paul writes, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Jude says, here, contend. We are, beloved, we are contenders. 
We are to contend. On this side of eternity, we are yet in the world. In a very real sense, we Christians are in the trenches, as it were. We are in the trenches. We are not yet the church victorious. But now, on this side of heaven, we are the church militant. Defending and contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We sing and we are going to sing after this sermon. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. And that, my friends, is the book of Jude. And if you didn't notice, the title of the sermon this afternoon. But before we unpack the purpose of the book, let me introduce you to its author and to his intended audience. And so here's the outline for this afternoon. Firstly, the author. Secondly, his intended audience. And lastly, the purpose of his epistle, the epistle of Jude. Well, firstly then, the author. Jude identifies himself right out of the gate. The first word in this epistle is his name, Jude. And Jude is short for, if you didn't know, for Judah. Jude's father, a man named Joseph, named him after the patriarch of their tribe. They were Jews. They were of the tribe of Judah, which is where the designation Jew comes from. Now then, Jude, the Jew, he gives us three names in the first verse of his epistle. His own name, Jude, and then the name of his Lord and Master, the name Jesus Christ. And finally, the name of his brother, his older brother, as we will soon discover. Jude was the younger brother to James. And this James is the James who wrote the book of James. This is the James who led the church in Jerusalem, according to Acts 15. In Galatians, James, the brother of Jude, the older brother, is referred to as an apostle. He is also referred to as a pillar. He is a pillar of the church universal. James is listed alongside of the apostles Peter and John. And he's listed in this order, James, Peter, and John. He's listed first, which is not insignificant. And so Jude and James were brothers. Jude was James's little brother. They were Jews from the tribe of Judah. Their dad's name was Joseph. And their mother's name was Mary. Paul refers to James. Paul refers to James, the older brother of Jude, in Galatians 1.19, as an apostle and the Lord's brother. James was Jesus' younger brother. And Jude was James's younger brother, which means that this Jude was Jesus' youngest brother. James was Jesus' younger brother, and Jude was James's younger brother. Listen to Matthew. Matthew 13.55, Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth, and we were in Nazareth on Tuesday. Was it Tuesday? We walked into this synagogue. 
Jesus teaching in his hometown, in the town of Nazareth. And as you know, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And the people of Nazareth who were gathered in synagogue, they were offended by Jesus. And so they mocked him. They said, where did this man get this wisdom from? Where did he get this mighty work? They said, is this not, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And listen to this. His brothers, they list out the names of his brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judah. And there's our man. There he is. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was his oldest brother, the firstborn of Mary. And so Jude was Jesus' baby brother. James and Jude grew up with Jesus. But it was as they, as they grew up that they despised their older half-brother. In fact, they hated him. In fact, they wanted him dead. Growing up with Jesus did not somehow sanctify them. In fact, quite the opposite. They hated Jesus and they wanted Jesus dead. Just like, as we heard, just like Joseph in Genesis, his brothers despised him. Turn with me to John 7. John chapter 7. Listen to this and and I'll read it to you. Jude was no follower of Jesus. He was no disciple. In fact, as I mentioned, Jude despised Jesus and even wanted him dead. John 7, we begin in verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in the Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. They were encouraging him to go to Judea. They knew that the Jews were out to kill Jesus. Go show yourself if you are who you say you are. Well, what happened to Jude? What happened to James and to Jude? When were these men converted? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Familiar territory? Paul reiterating the gospel to the Corinthian church? Teaching them about the resurrection? Paul says in Verse 3 of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, 
he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. My best guess is that after James saw his resurrected brother, my best guess is that after this resurrection, James received his older brother as Lord and Savior. And what happened to James and and what happened to Jude is what has happened to many of us here today. They once despised and rejected their brother. Jesus once familiar, but you know that familiarity breeds contempt. I've read so many membership applications over the years at this church. I've I've read applications of those who've grown up in the church, hearing the gospel, growing up with Jesus as it were, knowing about Jesus, familiar with Jesus, knowing about Him, but not knowing Him. Not knowing the power of His death and resurrection. Not confessing Him as the Son of God, as God incarnate. But He is. He is the Savior come to save the likes of us. Sent of His Father, come down to bring us up. Made like us so that He might make us like Him, holy and without blemish. To save us from our sin, from the death of sin, from judgment and from sin, death and hell. He laid down his life as a substitute for our sins, as a sacrifice of atonement. And so he was crucified on a cross and died the death that sinners deserve in our place, in our stead. Who was buried and who rose again. Who was resurrected to everlasting life. To give life and to reconcile all who trust in him before a holy God, before his heavenly Father. Once crucified, now resurrected, the risen Christ calls everyone to repent of sin and unbelief and put their full trust in Him, in His person and work. He calls all men and women and boys and girls to come to Him for salvation. And you see, that's exactly what happened to Jude and to his brother James. And if you're a non-believer here today, this is what must happen to you. With James and Jude, you must come to Christ. You must come to Him as Lord and Savior. As your Lord and Savior. Confessing with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. Believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. This is what happened to Jude and what must happen to you. What has happened to many of us here in this room. Well then, at the beginning of Acts, the book of Acts, we find James among the other apostles gathered for prayer at Pentecost in the upper room. And so James, Jude's older brother, took his place as a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And I imagine that Jude stayed with James in Jerusalem. And I say that because 
the more we read the book of Jude, the more we will discover that it sounds like 1st and 2nd Peter. The book of Jude sounds like 1st and 2nd Peter. In fact, Jude is a commentary on 1st and 2nd Peter and vice versa. Both James and Peter led the church in Jerusalem. And so it sounds like Peter had a huge influence on Jude. Perhaps Peter discipled Jude. And as you know, the book of Jude is the last of the New Testament epistles, just before John's revelation. Likely, it is likely placed there because it was one of the last books to be written in the New Testament. And I believe that it was written after Peter's death. When? When much of of Peter's and Paul's, for that fact, when much of the apostles' warnings about false teachers were becoming a reality in the early church. And so, friends, this is Jude. He is James's younger brother. He is Jesus's younger brother. But most importantly, if you look down at verse 1 in Jude, he identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, as a bondslave. Some of your translations say a servant. Another one, the one that he pledged his allegiance to, his brother, he was Jesus' servant. He was in a very real sense, his older brother's slave. And perhaps, perhaps the mantle of leadership that came from Peter was placed upon Jude. Now, to serve our Lord as a bond slave, as a servant means that you keep and tend and feed, just as Jesus said to Peter, if you love me, Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God, serve as an overseer, be as an example for God's flock, serve as an under-shepherd, an under-shepherd under the chief shepherd. And so to serve God as a slave, as a servant, is to serve His church, to keep and, and protect, to serve and to shepherd, to guard the flock entrusted to you and that is exactly what a servant and a bond slave of Jesus Christ does and this is exactly what Jude does in this epistle well then to whom is Jude written his audience and we notice right away that this epistle is not written to any one particular church look at verse 1 to those who are called sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Jude is writing to the church universal. His epistle is known as an encyclical, written to and for the church universal, for everyone and all believers. In other words, friends, it's written for us and to us. It is an encyclical. To those who are called, Jude said, called of God. And we are called out of the world. We are called into the kingdom. Called out of the world and called into the community of God. To the church of God. And the called, Jude says, 
are the sanctified. And your translation might read loved or beloved of the Father. We are called, we are loved, and kept. We are preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, to be loved, to be the beloved of of anyone, is a great blessing in life, generally speaking. But then to be loved by Almighty God is a blessing beyond compare. It is, it is a joy unspeakable to be loved by infinite Almighty God. A joy unspeakable and, and full of glory to be loved by the divine and to know that divinity is also our paternity, our Father in heaven. He is our God and Father. And He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And it is He who loves us with a love that is immeasurable, that is boundless and tied up with His love for His own Son, with the love that He has for Himself, namely the beloved Son. And so in Him, in Christ, we too are loved and beloved. Jude says this, that we are preserved in Jesus Christ. We are kept in Jesus Christ. Friends, there is no safer place in all of creation, in all of existence. There is no safer place in the universe than in Jesus Christ. When I feel my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He must and He will. For we are kept and preserved in Jesus Christ. This is the preservation and the perseverance of the saints kept in Christ by God the Father for his glory and praise. And this is one of the many themes in the book of Jude. This preservation, this this perseverance. Look at verse 24 in the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to, here it is, to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He will keep us and he will present us before the presence of his glory. And now why is this theme so important to Jude? Because as we will soon discover, he is calling believers, all of us, to fight, to contend for the faith. To fight and contend against false teachers, against the powers of this dark world, against false Christians who are embedded in the visible community like hidden landmines. And friends, in the fog of war, in the discouragement of the trenches, we must know, we must know that it is God who keeps us. He preserves and He protects us in Jesus Christ. Christ, the captain of our salvation. Friends, He has already conquered the enemy. He has defeated sin and death. And He is the one who 
who has power over death. And he has defeated our enemy, the devil. And so fear not, beloved. He is able to keep you. To keep you and to present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Oh, beloved church. Look at verse 2. Jude says, let mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so in the thick of war, these are the weapons of our warfare. Mercy, peace, and love. And we will need these in abundance. Let them, he says, be multiplied, growing, increasing, superabounding, full and filling. Mercy, peace, and love, he says, be multiplied to you. Multiplied and multiplying. And if the big three are multiplied in our souls, what should we then, what should we then be? If mercy be multiplied, will this not make us merciful and compassionate people? A people characterized by mercy and merciful yet still? And, and all the more merciful as we see the day approaching? A, a people, those who are characterized by peace and a peace that surpasses understanding. A peace that grows and pervades. A peace that multiplies in our soul so that we say and sing, When all thy billows o'er me roll, it is well. It is well with my soul. Mercy, peace, and love. Love. Love now. The crown jewel of Christian virtue. Faith, hope, and love. You remember 1 Corinthians 13. But the greatest of these is love. And Jude says, love be multiplied to you. Love be multiplied in you and through you. To grow in God's love as He pours out His love upon us in Jesus Christ. To grow in love is to love God all the more. And, and to love those around you all the more. To love your brothers and sisters. To love your neighbors and co-workers. And your fellow image bearers. When love multiplies, this multiplication makes us more loving. It's that simple. Friends, these are the weapons of our warfare. And these are the very weapons we will need to contend, as Jude exhorts us, to contend rightly and to fight faithfully. Now, we could spend an entire sermon on each one of these virtues, but we hasten on. We've identified the author. We have identified his audience. Lastly, we turn our attention to the purpose of this short epistle. Why, why did Jude write? What is his thesis? The main point of the epistle. If you took the hermeneutics class, what is the central unifying theme of this epistle? Well, we can thank Jude because he makes it so simple for us. He lays it out. Look at verse 3. He says this, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you, Concerning our common salvation, I find it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And so you can imagine with me, Jude sat down to write this epistle and he put pen to parchment 
dipping in scratch, scratch, dip, scratch, dip, scratch. He began to write a letter of encouragement. He, he wanted to write to God's people about, he tells us, about our common salvation. About the great doctrines of our salvation. The doctrines of grace. He was diligent and, and determined to do so. But as soon as he began to write, something was wrong. Something wasn't right. And so he balled up his letter and put it in the bucket. He starts over. And then he begins to write. And something wasn't right. There's something more. Something more needful. More necessary. And so he balls it up in the bucket. Something was on his heart. A concern. A burden. Verse 3, again, he says, I wanted to write about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write, to exhort. To exhort you to what? To contend. To put on the full armor of God and contend earnestly. In other words, with urgency, with conviction, and with earnestness. To contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Why? Why contend for the faith? Beloved, because our common salvation is under attack. And we must defend and contend for the faith. And mind you, Jude writes, he writes out of a great love and an even greater concern for the church and her well-being. He writes from what he calls necessary. He writes out of necessity, out of an urgent necessity. And so, what is Jude about? What is the thesis, the main point of the epistle? Friends, hear it. Jude wants us to contend earnestly for the faith, to fight for the faith, protecting it, preserving it, and propagating the faith which was once for all delivered to us, to God's people, to God's church. And so the book of Jude is an exhortation and it is a call to arms. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not passive but proactive. We are called to contend, to be contenders. Just as Paul exhorted Timothy at the end of his epistles to fight the good fight of faith and to do so earnestly. Why? Because everything we love, everything we treasure and cherish, namely our common salvation, the very gospel of our salvation, that faith, our faith, Jude says, the faith is threatened. It is under attack by those, look at verse 4, who have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly men who turn God's grace into lewdness, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, a denial of the Lordship of Christ is always accompanied with lewdness, ungodliness, debauchery, and carnality. Some of your translations say this, sensuality or licentiousness. In other words, a license, licentiousness, a license for evil, a license for immorality, licentiousness. And so, beloved, we need to know on the one hand 
what and who we are fighting against. What and against whom we contend. And on the other hand, we also need to know what we are contending for. What are we fighting for? Namely, the faith. The faith. To protect, preserve, and propagate the faith. Emphasis on the definite article. The faith. This is not our subjective faith. Our personal beliefs. Our own personal convictions and experiences. This is not individual faith. And Jude is not referring to our own personal trust in the Lord. No, Jude is talking about objective truth. This faith is the faith. Again, definite article, capital F. The Christian faith. And Jude is not speaking about the act of believing, putting your faith in Jesus. But rather, he is speaking of a body of doctrine. A body of doctrine embraced by all believers, by the church universal and every time and place. Beloved, this assumes, this assumes that the Christians that Jude is writing to, that he is writing to, are well versed in Christian doctrine. In the faith. What we're used to referring to at this church as the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The doctrines of God's grace. Primary doctrines. Gospel doctrines. Now, Jude doesn't go off and list out what these essential, fundamental, primary doctrines are. Because, because he assumes that his readers are Orthodox Christians. And and friends, we see this language throughout and all over the epistles. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, we read it, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, in which you are saved. Paul preached what was of primary importance. In Galatians 1.7, there is only, Paul refers to, one gospel. In verse 23, Paul refers to this body of essential Christian doctrines as the faith. Philippians 1.27, the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 4, 5, one faith, one hope, one baptism. And in that same chapter, verse 23, the unity of the faith. 1 Timothy 4, 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. What Paul said then, what he prophesied then, about many departing from the faith becomes an absolute reality in the days of Jude. Just one generation after Paul. And so let me ask you Christians, let me challenge you. Do you know the essentials? Do you know the essentials? What are, what are the primary doctrines? Do you know, can you defend and contend for the faith? What is the gospel? What is the content of the faith? What Paul refers to as of primary importance. And perhaps you're at a loss. If you're at a loss, I would encourage you to go through the membership process. We we teach you the essentials 
of biblical Christianity. Doctrines that have been held to since the time of the apostles and by the church throughout the ages of church history. What Christians believe and what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches about who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unity in Trinity and Trinity in unity. About the creation, about the fall, about salvation, election, justification, sanctification, and God's church. And we don't have time to go through and unpack a list of essentials. But beloved, you should know. Friends, we should know and must know. Else we will not know what we are fighting for. And please note, our faith, the faith, was, Jude says it, once for all delivered to the saints. Our faith, the gospel of our salvation in Jesus Christ, was once for all delivered to us, to God's people, from God Himself, through holy apostles and prophets. Beloved, the Christian faith is historic. It is once for all delivered. It is not changing or developing, or evolving, or emerging, but rather it is absolute. It is objective. It is delivered and definitive. Orthodoxy is absolute and decided. It is established and complete. The Christian faith is not amorphous, subject to the changing times and seasons. We cannot and must not edit, add, subtract, or delete. It is fixed and established. And we need to hear that in a world where everything is trending and changing. I want old, we say around here, old is gold. Amen, I heard an amen. Hallelujah. And friends, we must study to know this. So that we can contend and defend it. This faith, the faith, our faith, is nothing less than the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. In this message, by this word, souls are saved from an eternal hell and from judgment. And if this gospel is lost, then all is lost. Why is Jude so earnest? Why is he so urgent? Look at verse 4. Because certain men have crept in unnoticed. They have crept into the church. On the surface, they look like the real thing. They look like everyone else. Friends, they blend in perfectly. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. Look at verse 12 in Jude. They are clouds without rain. They are trees without fruit. They make a show of godliness, but they have no substance. These men have crept into our ranks. And notice this war is internal. Peter and and Paul and John, they warned the church of false teachers from the outside. False teachers would attack the church from the outside. But Jude says, Jude says that they have crept in. They are among us in our midst from the inside. They are sleeper cells, if you will. Cancer cells in the body waiting to be activated. Verse 12 says that they are hidden reefs that lie just below the surface. And so friends, this is what compelled Jude to write. While Peter and Paul warned, they said, they're coming, the false teachers, they're coming, they're coming. Jude says, they're here. They're here. They're in our midst. And while 
They may have crept in unnoticed. Beloved, God knows. He has, verse 4, marked such men out for condemnation. They are marked men. Beloved, when God puts a target on someone, he does not miss. And this is precisely what Jude will go on to unpack in verses 5 to 7. And we'll get there next week. They are marked men. This is what theologians call the doctrine of reprobation. Marked out for condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, into a license for evil. They pervert the grace of God, making God's grace a license for immorality. The ESV translation says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. False teachers. And all who are led astray by them, those who don't know God's saving grace, they, they abuse God's grace. They misuse it and they pervert God's grace. And this is how they sound. This is how they talk. And Paul said it this way. They, they say things like this. Let us sin that grace may abound. And Paul says, absolutely not. Shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? They sound like this. They sound like this. Well, uh, we all sin, don't we? We're all sinners after all. God's grace and God's love covers us, so we don't have to worry about all of that. God forgives us. Let us sin that grace may abound. And they're always talking about the grace of God, God's grace, God's grace, God's love, and they toot that horn all day, and yet they live like hell. They live like there is no God. Immorality and sensuality, debauched and depraved. Beloved, those who claim to be saved by God's grace and yet live like hell, they demonstrate that they don't know God's grace. Because the grace that saves from hell and judgment, that very same grace delivers us from the practice of sin, from living licentiously, immorally, and shamelessly. Let me give you two verses. Titus. Titus chapter 2. In verse 11, just, and I hear you turning, but as you're turning there, hear what Paul says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And so God's grace, which brings salvation, has been made known to all. And this grace, he goes on to say, this grace is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God that saves us is the very same grace of God that sanctifies us. It's the same. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Beloved, all who pervert God's grace, they de facto deny the only Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ, said Jude. Their lifestyle, their immorality denies God's lordship, the lordship of Christ. Perhaps not by their talk. They can talk up a big game. They have a, a solid profession. But they deny God by their walk. 
Now, brothers and sisters, as I bring this to a close, I don't mean to make you paranoid. I really don't. I, I don't mean to make you paranoid and so that you start pointing fingers. False teacher. False teacher. I knew it. I don't mean to make you paranoid so that you look behind every tree and under every rock. False teacher under here? No, I don't, I don't want you to do that. And, and I don't want you to think, absolutely, that, that every stumble or fall is somehow going to reveal that this person or that person or that you yourself were some kind of false teacher. But as we read Jude, as we dig in, this word, I hope, will heighten our urgency. The urgency we have for one another and ourselves. Look at verse 21 if you turn back to Jude. In verse 21, and Pastor Dave will be taking these passages up. Jude says this, a big imperative. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that second person reflexive pronoun, yourselves, is not in the singular. It's in the plural. And so he's saying, you all. In other words, y'all. You all keep each other and yourselves in the love of God. We should ask ourselves at church, am I my brother's keeper? And we should answer in the same breath, yes. Yes, I am. And as we study Jude together, side by side, as it were, in the trenches, we must contend together, side by side. In other words, holding rank, as it were. And as we love each other, as we keep each other in God's love, our love, our loyalty, our commitment to each other will purify us from the inside out. For as our love and accountability as it heats up, as our bonds tighten, this love will, our love will smoke out the ungodly, if you will. They will not be able to handle it. And if you can't take the heat, then get out of the kitchen, as they say. Our mutual love and accountability will identify and make the ungodly uncomfortable. And those who have crept in, as Jude says, will be in a very real sense, squeezed out. Squeezed out as we embrace one another in love. And thus, Christ, with Christ and, and with His Word at the center of all we do, God will build His church. Christ will build His church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. Let's pray together. Eternal and gracious God, we confess that we have lived passively in the world. We have allowed this world to shape us. We have allowed the world to exercise dominion over us, shaping our thoughts, our desires, our purposes and plans. We have allowed the darkness to encroach upon us, our families, our children, our work, and even our churches. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us and convict us afresh. 
We confess that we have let down our guard. We confess that we are resting when perhaps we should be fighting. Contending for the faith once for all delivered to us. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. Forgive us, Lord, and increase our faith. Make us men and women, the men and women we need to be and must be for the sake of our communities, for the sake of our families, our children, our co-workers, and for the sake of this dying and lost world. Make us salty in a tasteless world, light in the midst of shadows and darkness, hope in the midst of hopelessness, an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness with the sword that makes the wounded whole. We promise to fight with faith and valor. As our worship continues, receive our praises, answer our prayers, and above all, bring glory to your holy name. This we pray in the name of your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen.